0: Hello, this is Verdurin and Pierre Thorencet. The relationship between images and truth has a complicated history. The very possibility of aesthetic artefacts carrying an objective meaning with or in them has long-occupied philosophers. The Kantian settlement on aesthetic judgement, as detached from external interests and free from concepts, gave rise to artistic production of images that were read with epistemic authority. The advent of modernity, however, has at once shaken the certainty and reinforced it. No sooner have we reckoned with the singular history painting and illustrated magazines. We have landed in a mass media world where any possible image can and does exist. And the more we are surrounded by images, the greater claims they make. Photographs are not only routinely used to convey news, they are used to establish what is and isn't true. The crime scene photograph is now as likely to be used in a court of law as in the newspaper infographic explainer. The artifact is at once the evidentiary carrier of truth and a visualization used to confirm it. It creates meaning and it argues for it. Visual Culture and the Forensic, a new book by David Houston Jones, takes on the conflicted life of the image as evidence. It abridges practices conventionally understood as forensic, such as crime scene investigation, and the broader field of activity, which the forensic now designates, for example, in performance and installation art, as well as, of course, photography. The book traces the history of artists and photographers fabricating over literature images, and it poses a challenge to the kinds of images that we fall back on when we try to understand complex ideas, such as data or security. As of that, you'll find links to the works we discuss in the show notes, From there, you can also join my newsletter with my writing and art and culture, as well as to support my work. David, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much
0: for having me. David, I found the book almost unreasonably exciting, and for a couple of reasons. One is that you write about the practice of the research agency, Forensic Architecture, which listeners to the channel might already recognize as one of my long-term research interests. But also because you deal with a topic that I think is incredibly important to us navigating the world of images that we find ourselves in. We agreed before we started recording that it might be a good idea not to talk about forensic architecture too much. So let's start with the basic. Um, Who are you and how on earth did you come to make the connection between images and forensics?
1: Thanks, Pierre. Well, who am I? Um, I am professor of French and visual culture at the University of Exeter, and I've been investigating visual culture in different forms for quite a long time, but I've only recently branched out to look at the field of activity that goes by the name of the forensic, so that's what I'm addressing in this book in all its different forms. It's apparently quite narrow in the way we think about it, Mm -hmm. It's associated with crime scene investigation, but really the thrust of the book is that there's a much broader field of activity going on there, and that it can't be defined solely in relation to professional crime scene investigation. It has to be defined by reference to other visual activity.
0: Okay, let's try to do that. I think most of our listeners will be okay with the notion of visual culture but they might well harbour some slightly skewed views as to what it is the forensic, or indeed forensic science, mean. Um, Of course, we have this kind of popular understanding of forensic science being performed by the police, or indeed on crime scene investigation TV shows, but that might be one of the first things that we we have to tackle and dispel.
1: Well, we have an idea of what the forensic is, and this is often described in relation to the csi effect as it's now called Mm -hmm. the presence of the forensic in popular culture particularly television drama um, and the way that crime scene investigation produces forms of visual evidence so that is present in people's minds in some form but it needs to be challenged And complicated in various ways. As soon as we start to talk about the forensic, it spills over into other things. And as soon as we move from talking about television drama to other visual forms, that becomes more and more apparent. So that's the sort of area that I've tried to look at in the book. There are various attempts to define the forensic, but they always require further reference to visual material of different kinds.
0: All right. Well, tempting as it would be to track the development of the TV police procedural, you do something slightly more vital and, and more complex in the book, which is to trace the history over maybe the last 50, 70 years in which visual culture develops the kind of apparatus that you see then feeding into our understandings of the forensic. And you organized the book in a really interesting way, which is to consider not necessarily the techniques, not necessarily the politics, but actually the aesthetic subject. So you start with a body, we move on to landscape next, and later you deal with more abstract concepts like data. I wonder if we could start by looking at the practice of the photographer Angela Strassheim.
1: Strassheim is interesting because she spans two areas of activity. First of all, that of professional crime scene photography itself, and secondly, that of a much more arty form of image production. Strasheim creates a series called Evidence from 2009, which consists really of two things. A series of very deadpan photographs of residential buildings, and on the other hand, a series of Black and white photographs of interiors. And those interiors are treated using, using Blue Star, a forensic agent which reacts to traces of blood. Mm-hmm. So this might not be obvious when you first view the images, but they are forensic in the sense of depicting bodily bodily residues which are present. At the site of crimes in the past. So these are images which have a, a kind of dual forensic meaning, if you'd like.
0: Okay, well, I wonder if we could start to extend the forensic gaze towards the work in some detail. Listeners will find links to the works we're about to discuss in the show notes. You describe this kind of duality of the images that Straskin produces, and I'm kind of bemused that you use the word arty to characterize some of her practice. And I think this this really requires a an answer of some sort like are we to treat her work as mere artifice or should we treat her artistic work as somehow revealing of the kind of technical work that she does when she produces um, police work
1: yeah okay so if we take um, evidence one it's clear that we're looking at some kind of fairly ordinary domestic interior the light is unusual we can see A lot of basic details that we'd expect to find in any interior shot of a house, blinds, window frame, walls, skirting board, and so on. And then we see patches of unexplained light within that interior. And it's only once we understand what's going on with the forensic agent that Strassheim uses that we really get an insight into the significance of that shot. So this is an interior which demands a certain kind of work and a certain kind of attention from the viewer. And it's one which prompts us to think critically perhaps about the forensic as a category in image production.
0: So we're really, I think, beginning to see some kind of affinity between the medium of photography and the question of evidence. And that brings me to ask two questions in parallel. One is the question of what it is that photography in and of itself brings to the area of forensics. So as a little illustration, I'll tell you that when I was at art school, before Strasheim, but certainly after many of the artists that you mention in the book, I produced a whole body of work that concerned itself with ideas of evidence. And some of these images look kind of eerily like the images that you mention in the book, And I say all of this not to claim any degree of originality, but rather to suggest that there is something in the medium itself that welcomes and draws um, the examination of its potential as an evidentiary and truth-making medium. So in a sense, I'm wondering if the photography already by itself produces certain evidentiary tropes. And the second question is, is, is whether if that reflection is produced, whether it has any ability to comment on Strassheim's day job. So I'm wondering, essentially, if artistic photography can comment on non-artistic photography, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really important question, because the association of photography with police work, crime scene investigation, of course, goes back a very long way, goes right back to Alphonse Bertillon in the 19th century. Um, the work of Locard, the creation of the first police laboratories, mm. and the beginnings of forensics as a professionalized area of activity. So that association is extremely important. Um, I thought you put it very well when you talked about evidentiary tropes, because photography is very frequently taken to be capable of producing evidence, isn't it? and even mm-hmm. to simply be evidence problematic, though that claim is. And this goes back to the idea of photographic indexicality. That is, mm-hmm. that photography bears a direct causal trace of the phenomena that it records somehow. But mm-hmm. Of course, there's always another story there. And even crime scene photography itself mm-hmm. always opens out into the broader visual field as soon as its records are created. So no image can remain pure evidence. It becomes a visual artefact to be consumed and distributed within our visual culture. And photographers like Strassheim and Pullen really trade on that capacity to exceed the evidentiary frame into which the work is initially placed.
0: And that becomes very slippery, very quickly. I'll admit that when I was reading the book, I was essentially reading it to confirm some of my earlier biases, by which I mean that with pretty much every one of your examples, I was kind of rubbing my hands saying, oh, look, yet another artist who's lying to us, therefore we must not trust them. Of course, I'm being very facetious here. This is an overstatement. I'm trying to think of a way in which we Draw an extension from someone like Angela Strasheim, who maybe, if we give her the benefit of the doubt, primes us to think about both evidence and artifice at the same time. How we move one step away from her to another one of your case studies, Melanie Pullen, who produces work that looks very similar, but is essentially circulated in the realm of fashion photography. So there we are in an environment in which we were led to to believe that nothing but the artifice really exists. The critical apparatus is not being actively cultivated. And of course, I'm not going to indict viewers of such images with the lack of sensitivity to understand what is true and what is being fabricated. But if we understand that these images contain very, very simple ideas, you know, there's usually one body, there's one very simple conception of a crime. If we extend this, I admit, for quite a few steps and take it to the level of fake news, so images that are so confusing as to be undecipherable, I'm, I wonder whether you're not onto something in this analysis.
1: Yeah, I think this gets at the really quite tricky interface between photography and evidence and the problem of artifi- artifice which arises there. And you mentioned Melanie Pullen. That's an important example in the book. And this is a body of work which really gestures much more towards artifice than does Strassheim, for example. Uh, We're basically looking at fashion photographs which simulate crime scenes. Mm -hmm. So there's a question there that arises for viewers uh, of how do we take this? How do we take these photographs in relation to our expectations about evidence? And how do we read them in relation to the codes of fashion photography, which is the main point of reference in Poland? At its best, I think what this kind of work does is to make us question some of our preconceptions about viewing this type of material and the kinds of viewing positions, the kinds of voyeurism that very frequently arises both from crime scene photography, and work which arises indirectly from it. So one of the things that's very clear in Melanie Pullen is that viewing angles are really being dramatised. And in quite a number of those photographs, we see apparently dead bodies. They're simulated, of course, bodies of women at a considerable distance. And there's a great sweep in viewing. Which has something markedly aesthetic about it. In a few of the images, Pullen engages more directly with a downward mode of looking, and that's very important because that's also the dominant viewpoint in crime scene photography. Going back to Bertillon in the 19th century, Bertillon create an apparatus which specifically allows that straight down vertical view to be applied to the crime scene, typically a scene in which violent death has taken place. And that's an attempt to remove some of the subjectivity that always creeps in in photography. It's an attempt to provide a standardised viewpoint, a standardised way of looking at the scene of the crime. But that's really satirised in quite a lot of contemporary photography. And there's a photograph by Melanie Pullen which does that really quite explicitly. And It's called Hugo's Camera. And this is, I think, the only photograph in the series High Fashion Crime Scenes that explicitly shows the photographer looking at the body. And it shows a male photographer in dress which dates it probably in the early 20th century or late 19th century. It shows a box camera looking down onto a woman's body in the aftermath of a violent crime. So there's a very explicit staging there of viewpoint and of the way that viewpoint has become attached to the promise of objectivity in crime scene photography.
0: Yeah, that's intriguing because I think what you're building, there is evidence of the artist's kind of irrepressible desire to become part of meaning-making and truth-making. And the evidentiary is, of course, one of the modes in which that happens. When I read the book, one of the things that came to mind is the event and the photographs of the 2015 death of Alan Cordy, the the refugee boy who was washed up on a seashore. And that was, of course, a tragedy and a media event. But the interesting aspect of this is that the artist Ai Weiwei, for some reason, could not think twice and stop himself from restaging that scene and taking the space of the boy's body in a photograph of his own. Now, one can critique this in many ways as a slightly tasteless act. One can critique it for, for its lack of artistic merit. But doubtlessly, there is this kind of irrepressible desire to come and contribute to the creation of a historical record through artistic practice. And of course, I'm not condemning that, really, because that is what art does. The artist is there to help us look at events, help us look at truths in in an alternative way, using tools available to them. But there is something interesting about this particularly technical treatment, you know, that you already outlined. Even Wei Wei uses exactly the same composition as the news cameras have done. So he already invests his work with this idea of objectivity.
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting point, this, isn't it? Um, That incident isn't in the book, although it could easily have been. You're absolutely right. And I think there's a difference here between examples like the Melanie Pullen photograph that I mentioned, which looks at historical modes of depicting the female body and the traces of violence, And on the other hand, those cases where artists intervene directly in specific cases and situations involving named individuals. So, on the one hand, you have quite a broad engagement with modes of viewing, ways in which photography has created evidence. And on the other hand, you've got something much more direct and personal. Examples of that come up in the book, in the work of Catherine Smith, for example, who looks at a cold case from South Africa in the 1940s. Mm. And that is very much about an individual. It's about a woman who was murdered on the outskirts of Johannesburg, Jacoba Schroeder. And it seems to me a kind of visual intervention of a different quality. On the one hand, you've got something that's really about methodology, and on the other hand, you've got a different kind of impulse, which is, yes, about image making, it's about visual histories, it's about traditions, but it's also guided by a kind of ethical impulse, which is much more specific and live. So it's very interesting to look into that kind of work, whether it's in the work of Catherine Smith, or there are other examples that I think about later on in the work of Trevor Paglin, for example, who comes at this from a very different angle and broadens the concern that we've seen so far with photography in quite specific ways, out to think about other types of image making, too.
0: That project by Catherine Smith, I think, is quite pivotal in the book for a couple of reasons. One is that it relates to an event that took place in 1949, therefore has been under discussion, has been a subject of investigation in South Africa for an incredibly long time by the time that Smith comes to produce it in 2012. So the artist here sets herself the challenge of doing better than the 60 years worth of official investigations that would have supposedly been Thought of or produced by by either the state or other agencies, and of course you've mentioned some of the apparatuses with which Smith uh, approaches this work, but I think it's it's worth underlining that there is some kind of a development because we are now looking at work that includes not only quite simply you know on the face of it visible evidence but it requires a development of a certain critical vocabulary it relies on reasoning. So that's one set of problems. And the other one I think is this kind of contextual note, which I wonder whether you you have something to, to say on, um, which is that this is also a period where the museum, the Contemporary Art Gallery, really starts engaging with this archival term, which is a term that you explore in the book as well. So this is a moment when the museum and the gallery become completely comfortable with showing complex arguments rather than necessarily you know, straightforwardly aesthetic artworks, by this I mean you know big presentations that contain often quite overwhelming amounts of text and arrows and and essentially function as argument. So we have this paradigm where we go to the gallery to both look at information that has supposedly already been fact checked, but also to participate in its decoding, in its creation. And I feel like contemporary art hasn't quite reconciled itself to the significance of this.
1: I think that move is a very ambivalent one. And on the one hand, it includes the tendency that you've described as research art, uh, or equally the archival term in artistic practice, or what I sometimes call archivalism, archivalist installation. And on the other hand, in Catherine's work, it involves a very direct attention to the documented facts of criminal cases as an area for further investigation. So I think that work, Incident Room, is very much shaped by the existing archivalist or research-based paradigm. And Catherine's very aware of the ways in which that work will be received. Uh, But at the same time, one of the remarkable things about that work is that she pursues the research process in ways which really extend beyond the dictates of the gallery. So this involves her following up on unexplored avenues in the police documentation, the very incomplete police report which existed and going out to possible burial sites using ground-penetrating radar and eventually finding the likely site of Jacoba's body. So there's a finding there which is very much in excess of the gallery instance of the work, if you like. Although when we talk about the work, it continues to be bound up with that drive to put evidence in the gallery. And that's such a tricky move. It's one that I'm still thinking about. And I'm still asking what happens to that evidence when it does appear in the gallery with all of those display boards, archival display cases, Mm. documents which we can look at and leaf through in some cases. What happens to that evidence in the gallery? Is it still evidence? And I think this is a question that you're concerned with as well. I read you right what happens to the evidence in the gallery setting, uh, there are a number of things which make me question whether it is still evidence in the way that it functions as evidence in other settings, such as the police archive, for example.
0: Well, David, I think you need to give yourself a little bit more credit because you do do something beautiful and almost disarming in the book that does, I think, help to advance the question of the status of evidence in the gallery, and what you do is you you look at painting. There's of course every reason to think about history painting as a kind of precursor for evidentiary image production. And one of the painters that you look at is Horace Vernet, who quite unflatteringly was described by Baudelaire as being more of a journalist gazetteer than a painter. And that that becomes interesting because you compare him to the photojournalist turned artist, Luc Dullier. And this becomes quite interesting, because if a painter can become a journalist, then a journalist can become an artist. The question that next follows is whether the artist can become a judge.
1: Yeah, I think the double address of Dullier's work is so interesting. It's so rich to look at. It's very ambiguous once again. And his work starts to be. Positioned in the gallery in the early 2000s, really. The way that Dulae frames it himself is in terms of history. History is the term that he uses Mm -hmm. to thematize these very large scale photographic works which he starts to place in the gallery. So, the history behind this, if I can put it that way, is that Dulae himself was. A photojournalist and his work then goes through a a transformation or a shift and it starts to be exhibited in art spaces in very large formats. So, to take one example, US bombing on Taliban positions. This is from 2001 and Mm -hmm. the print for that work measures over a thousand millimeters by 2000 by 51 so it's mm-hmm. an enormous landscape and it's literally very large in the gallery might sound as though I'm seduced by the detail here and in a sense I am but that sense of scale here I think is really important in that those works are both rooted in photojournalism and the work which Deleuze did for Magnum but also in art traditions and in the, the tradition of history painting in particular. So the question arises really of what we make of all this, what is the thrust of that work, and what is it able to do by appealing to those very aesthetically loaded tradition?
0: Well, I think that mode of address really warrants some examination. I'm going to propose that what was once known as aesthetics has kind of fallen out of failure in the course of the 20th century or throughout modernity. And... By this I mean that certain relationships that used to be taken for granted by at least certain spheres of society, um, the relationship between truth, its connotation, its representations, and the image, as I think typified by the production circulation and reception of the history painting, that all those codes have been lost. Now, I'm completely agnostic as to whether this is a very fundamental issue or whether this is merely something that we need to think about sociologically. Nonetheless, I think there is a gap that artists like Luc Léa can exploit because when he brings his works of this kind of tremendous scale that you describe, they do mimic history paintings that are now relegated to different types of institutions than contemporary photography ends up being shown at. The audiences that he meets are not necessarily primed to read his work as history paintings. They are primed to read his works as photography with its connotations and the kind of aesthetic value connotations that photography brings. And at least in principle, that value is open to exploitation for better or worse. Though I have to say that having just said all of this out loud, I'm wondering whether my take isn't completely naive because it's not like it wasn't ever thus. It can't be that you know the, the lettergraph, the illustrated London News wasn't already taking unprecedented liberties with aesthetic truth.
1: I think it's uh, that the abuses of truth get more and more complex, don't they, in a way? Yeah. And what we see in those Duley works is that... Um, Dulé really scrutinizes the ways in which aesthetic norms, aesthetic forms have permeated journalistic images in the past. And he does something very interesting with our visual attention. So visual attention is a huge problem in contemporary visual media, isn't it? In that we're bombarded with an ever greater number of images and that's particularly true of images of war and conflict. We think here about the Iraq war, Afghanistan. There are really radical changes in the ways that images are generated in those particular contexts. So, on the one hand, Dole slows all of that down. And it's almost as though he reacts to the imperatives of photojournalism and says, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to create slower, bigger images, which we actually have the time to look at, which we take the time to look at in the gallery space. So on the one hand, there's that pictorial, aestheticized quality. On the other hand, when we do stop to look at those images, it's very hard to know where to look. And this is partly a product of the scale. They're very large images. And it's very easy for our eye to get lost, for our visual attention to be overwhelmed by the mass of those photographs. He uses a panoramic camera, and it's very easy for us to get completely overwhelmed by these photographs, not through speed and multiplicity, but simply through scale. So. One of the things that that does is to make us question the ways in which we receive the imagery of war and conflict, of course. But there are also questions there about the underpinning of those images and their separation from forms of imagery that we associate with more aesthetic forms of looking as well. And it's another example of the permeability of that barrier.
0: Well, these are the problems we run into when we try to tackle the idea of aesthetic representation. But of course, you do raise the stakes in the latter parts of the book by placing the artist as a witness to events that are so complex that they don't necessarily have an obvious aesthetics. So we're moving into the realm of data and conceptual events. I'd like to try to do that maybe by talking about the work that you have reproduced on the cover of your book. And this is a piece by Trevor Paglan, which consists of a transparent plexiglass cube and inside it a piece of electronics. And that work, the claim, which is, I think, quite extraordinary, is that we are given an insight into the idea of data security and data flows. And what I find really interesting about this work is that we are talking about witnessing events who do not normally have a human witness.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think your formulation about the artist as a witness to a complex endeavor is really evocative in this context. And it starts off in quite a simple way, this strand of the argument, in that there is a type of visual work here which consists of making visible things that are not normally visible. And that includes the photography of data centers. Sites that we don't normally look at or even think about. We think about the cloud. We don't think about its infrastructure. So John Gerrard, Trevor Paglin, Simon Norfolk are all interested in making the spaces of the internet visible. But Trevor Paglin does that in a slightly different way with AutonomyQ. So I think this really gets at the problem of what is made visible here. And does so in the name of the forensic. So, Autonomy Queue consists of a sort of computer apparatus. It's a bundle of circuit boards, essentially, inside a plexiglass queue. And it has a function. So, the point of this object is not really to be looked at. It's a functional object, and it creates an internet relay. It diverts Wi-Fi traffic onto the Tor network. So when I say Tor here, I mean the Onion Router, a global network which consists of volunteer relays. Individuals allow their computers to be used as part of this network so that internet traffic can be bounced around. The point of that is that it can't be easily traced. It's to make it difficult to trace what individuals are doing on the internet, and therefore to give them a kind of privacy, which is part of a counter-forensic type of activity. So that's what Autonomy Cube is trying to do. But what's interesting here is that as well as being a functional object, it does become a visual object. It's placed in the gallery, and its plexiglass form makes it both quite visually remarkable, has a lot of visual impact, I think. And also it's a kind of lens through which you can look at other stuff in the gallery, as well as using it in order to keep your internet research secret while you're there.
0: Well, it's jolly nice of Paglin to provide that service. But actually, in all seriousness, this is a quite a serious endeavour from an artistic perspective, because the transparency of the cube and the transparency of the kind of activism that Paglin and Co are involved in somehow have a relationship. And what I'm building up to is to, uh, to to give you a compliment, because what you do next in the book is to introduce what to mind mind is maybe one of the two or three actually fruitful uses of the ideas of object-oriented ontology in the visual arts. So for listeners who might have already forgotten the triple O craze, object-oriented ontology, also known as speculative realism, is in a very, very kind of hammy way to describe it is the idea that objects in and of themselves bring with them sets of knowledges. So every single object has an ontology that is independent of human sensing, human aesthetics, even human existence. And what that means in another gross simplification is that objects could be understood to maybe be carriers of evidence if that category was already established within their ontologies, whether the human exists or not. So again, we are going towards a non-human agent as agent, a transhuman agent as agent. And we have quite a few very interesting examples of this happening in the book, one of which is the French artist Julien Charrier, who creates a kind of geological excavation in which he tells us that he is letting rocks speak for themselves. I mean, do they?
1: Yes. So this is what Chahier claims to do, isn't it? And that was so interesting to me because throughout the book, i wrestled with the problem of objectivity, the claims made in the name of visual media in relation to evidence. And we talked about photography and the ways in which Various practitioners try to eliminate or mitigate human subjectivity, try to take themselves out of the frame, try to create standardized viewing positions, and so on. Something much more radical happens now in our contemporary visual culture. A set of things have come into being which mean that we can create much more. I was going to say objective, but I still hesitate to say it. Um, Forms of image making which are not reliant on human viewpoints in the same way. So we're no longer reliant on human beings holding camera apparatus. We can create different types of photography, non-lens-based photography. There are all kinds of image making which don't directly involve human beings, and which also aren't intended to be viewed by human beings generally. Automated number plate recognition, Mm. barcodes, barcode scanners, facial recognition, there are so many of these. So all of these things include non-human viewpoints in a certain sense, and Julien Charrière trades on this part of the visual world. In order to scrutinize something that I've referred to as the language of things in the book. And Shakir also focuses on a number of threats to human existence. Uh, they include radioactivity and the climate crisis more broadly. Some of his work in this vein involves producing photographs, at other times, it involves installation. But there's a pretty consistent environmental focus to that kind of work, which is both driven by that concern with objectivity and also with a very detailed kind of ethical attention, which I've tried to shed some light on in the book. And that's not necessarily through a straight conventional ethical treatment of ethical problems but actually through some very aberrant positions, which Shahid deliberately insinuates into his work.
0: I think it's quite intriguing to see how quickly from the language of objectivity we have to move to the ethical question, particularly when it comes to climate art. You quote in the book Timothy Morton, who isn't happy to see his um, object-oriented ontology being used in that vein. He says that most environmental art is constructivist, not object-oriented, for the simple reason that constructivism has been the dominant mode of art in modernity, and he calls environmental art graffiti designed to change your mind. Well, that's a bad review but if I so on, and there's certainly a couple of examples of works in the book where one can see that this kind of reading is correct, but I'm not entirely sure whether we can just uses a get out of jail free card and just dismiss this concern with objecthood. There is of course another strand, I think related in a sense, certainly in art's fascination with ideas like new materialism, which imbue objects with not just ontologies and knowledge, but even almost almost kind of an emotional belonging. So clearly the relationship between ethics and politics and objecthood remains quite complicated.
1: Well I think it's very interesting what uh, Timothy Morton says about some of the very problematic issues which arise in trying to understand problems like the climate crisis. So he introduces the idea of hyper objects there and discusses the sorts of problems that arise in our attempts to decode visual media and to understand visual phenomena in terms of evidence. He focuses on photography in particular, but makes the very helpful point that you can't see global warming, that there are certain types of objects that can only be apprehended in a multi-dimensional kind of way. Um, He relates that to some of the photography, which has become the source of our ideas on the climate crisis Mm. there's quite a well-established visual repertoire there isn't there Um, melting icebergs polar bears stranded on sheets of ice this kind of thing and morton has some very interesting points about the ways in which some of that photography defamiliarizes as well as creating a very readily apprehensible visual lexicon so where Charrier's work comes into that is in works like the Blue Fossil series. But the problem for me in working with that sort of material is that there's only limited engagement with the kind of problem that Morton discusses in relation to the hyper object. The problems that Charrier creates are all ethical. In standing on top of the iceberg with <coughs> a blowtorch, he's creating a very Obvious ethical problem, Mm -hmm. exacerbating climate change in a terrible way, but a very small way, instead of mitigating its effects. So that's a work in which the epistemological engagement with problems of the hyper object is quite limited, though some other cases we see it in a slightly more extensive kind of form. But once again, all of this is gesturing back to established aesthetic traditions. Like uh, the kind of painting associated with Romanticism, Caspar David Friedrich, and so on, and those are ultimately reassuring points of reference on one level, but they also gesture out towards the idea of the sublime, hmm. the sublime, the overwhelming encounter with natural phenomena. So that may be where Charrier engages slightly more meaningfully with the problem of the hyperobject, problems like the climate crisis.
0: Okay well I want us to go back to another idea that we cannot quite see and that is the notion of data ephemera. We already talked about the kind of problems of non-human sensing and the whole question of whether machines can see whether the language is at all useful. There are a couple of examples in the book which are I think very useful to try to look at how artists, how how humans have been trying to deal with that in aesthetic terms, and I think they're pretty interesting because of how quickly they run into complete dead ends. And I'm not necessarily saying this in a disparaging way, because one of the examples you have in a book is Cory Archangel, who is a kind of internet shit poster or a maybe a shit artist, if we spell it as one word. And this is again not a not a critique. So one of the things that Archangel does is he tries to visualize data that would not have otherwise been subject to any form of human sensing. So he has this work from 2003, where he essentially collects, crush memory dumps from computers and turns them into film. And what's interesting about this, I think, is that unlike in the case of climate change, which tries to take an invisible process and turn it into aesthetic data, what Archangel does here is, is the opposite. He takes something that we cannot see, and turns it into something we can see but we cannot understand.
1: Yes, so there are lots and lots of situations now in which the production of evidence doesn't depend on individual human agents. Essentially, it's devolved to machines. Many of those operations are visual in some form, but they're not intended for visual observers. They're not intended for human observers. So Archangel's Data Diaries is one example, which deliberately misuses data, and the data are created by people in that case, but they're then mediated in a form which is uniquely unsuited to the human gaze. So they're evidence of human activity, but when they're translated into visual forms, those visual forms are not really intelligible to Human observers. We see quite a number of examples of this now. The way that Trevor Padlin has produced work dealing with the human face is an interesting example of this mm-hmm. as well, engaging with the ways that essentially computers create images of human faces in facial recognition processes. So a large part of the forensic is now taking place between computers, not between individual Mm. human agents and human viewers. So one of the questions that I've been looking at is what happens when we turn our gaze back to that arena, informational, data-driven as it is. That's quite a counterintuitive and perhaps rather silly enterprise in some ways, in that these things are not meant for us to view why should we view them Mm. nevertheless human impulse to view them is very strong and also helps us to understand that realm of the visual part of our visual world so some of these projects are quite frustrating visually speaking but that frustration can itself be very productive and rich it does force us i think to Think about that arena of image production in new ways. That's one of the things that Trevor Paglin's work certainly does. It does allow us to become more aware of the way that our images are being used and processed, often independently of our agency.
0: David, I've held you back all this time, but I don't think it would be fair for me to do this much longer. We had agreed not to focus on forensic architecture too much, but you do write about them in a book, and I think we're nearing to the point where some of the things that forensic architecture proposes are in a bit of attention with what you have built. I'm going to invite listeners to hear my full-length interview with Aya Weitzman and Matthew Fuller on the book Forensic Aesthetics and, indeed, the practice of forensic architecture for some of the details of how their aesthetic theory has been built up. But I think if I were to summarize what it is that they're trying to do, I would say that they are making a wholehearted attempt to rewrite in public consciousness and for evidentiary purposes, the relationship between the aesthetic and the forensic. And I think the practice is interesting in relationship to what you are doing, because they also begin, in a sense, with the human body, but particularly with the face. So if you've taken us to the whole end state by which we have machines identifying faces to think about this kind of quaint beginnings of forensic science, which do involve remodeling a human skull, I think that will be an interesting thing to pick up.
1: Yeah, so in a sense, the face is a focal point within the work of forensic architecture, and it frames some of these really important issues that we've talked about relating to evidence, and, on the other hand, aesthetically charged forms of image making. I said in a sense, because some of this work is really about the skull rather than the face, and in particular, the discovery of Josef Mengele's remains in Brazil in 1985. So this is something that Eil talks about in a great deal of detail. So this is in the book with Thomas Keenan, Mengele's Skull in 2012, and they situate the discovery of Mengele's Skull in 1985 as a watershed moment in the development of what they call the forensic aesthetic. That's a really important formulation for me in the book. It's also a very ambiguous one because it contains within it both the drive towards the forensic, the production of evidence, and on the other hand, the aesthetic, which appears to be something really quite different. But as I've tried to show, those two things are closely interlinked. Mm. So the identification of Mengele's skull is what's particularly important in the Weizmann and Keenan book. And this took place through an imaging process This would be done very differently today, probably involving DNA. But at the time, Mm. the way that they established that this was indeed Mengele's skull was by taking photographs that were known to depict Mengele while he was alive, projecting those photographs and simultaneously projecting the image of the skull, mapping the two things onto each other, taking measurements which allowed with reasonable certainty the discovery that this was Mengele's skull. So a form of material evidence. At the same time, it's worth pausing on the imaging process that underpins all of this. And it's an imaging process that itself can't be entirely separated from aesthetic concerns. It's impossible to look at those images without thinking about Prior representations on film, times there are a sort of horror film vibe. Mm. There are images that we already have in mind that we can never quite get away from there. So the forensic aesthetic is a hybrid object or hybrid idea, and one that we have to do some quite complex work with in order to tease out its
0: implications, I think. So what you describe is a process by which we have to approach every one of these situations almost with this kind of detective attitude. And it's not quite clear from the outset whether we won't have to be developing new methods for aesthetic or pseudo-aesthetic thinking about notions of evidence, notions of the forensic. So I want to, towards the end, ask you about the arc that you see developing as you go over these case studies. So if we start with painting, I think we have we have that kind of under our belt by now. We talk about Melanie Pullins and her fashion photography. We have a certain latitude to dismiss some of the implications of what she does as mere play. But then we end up, as we just did with forensic architecture, and questions which concerns themselves with things like genocide and you know, serious abuses of power. And of course, we have already glossed over the idea that we are living in a regime where the aesthetic doesn't matter because numbers are talking to numbers algorithmically. So how do we we synthesize all of this?
1: Well, I ended up at the end of this project with what I hope is a reasonably nuanced position. And although I had quite a number of criticisms of projects which are heavily invested in the evidentiary promise of visual media i did find myself actually endorsing some of their positions in a very conditional kind of way Hmm. so i looked at the forensic architecture project it's not one of my main case studies but it's a hugely important area of contemporary activity, I think, in refining what we mean by the forensic, taking it into new areas, and actually producing really important conclusions, challenging official narratives in many cases. So I thought about the 2010 drone strike in Waziristan that forensic architecture investigated, or the 2017 Algina drone strike in Syria, and the conclusions that they draw there, which are really sharply differentiated from the official accounts that have been given in each case, mm. I found myself feeling very glad that they were doing that kind of investigative work, mm. but I did find that there are other stories that have to be told in terms of the ways in which visual evidence inform those projects so Throughout the Forensic Architecture Project, there's a lot of evidence on aesthetics in a very particular sense. Usually, it's aesthetics defined in relation to sensing, so taking Mm -hmm. materials as sensors within particular environments. And you can see how this understanding is derived from the discipline of architecture. So materials as sensors But of course, the question of aesthetics goes a long way beyond that, and one of the things that I was really concerned to get at in the book was the broader aesthetic histories and the broader media histories which arise around those types of questions. So not only what is the history of photography, although that's important, but also how do we account for the relationship between material evidence and Testimony, for example. I think really, as we unpack those questions, that intertwining of evidence and the aesthetic becomes ever more complex. So, Eil Weizmann, when he talks about this, acknowledges the role to be played by artists, he talks about artist studios, activists, the media but also artists specifically, that's an area where I find myself wanting to hear more, more beyond the role of documentary filmmakers, for example, more specifically about artists and how they can feature in this landscape of the forensic as we now understand it. The formulations that we get in Weizmann's work are often quite ambivalent. For example, that of the aesthetic effect, of facts, the aesthetic of facts, as well as the forensic aesthetic. Both of those terms are really highly ambiguous, highly charged, and they need to be decoded and unpacked.
0: Well, I think the way that you've arranged this material in the book is useful because it has led me to consider the role of art as a discipline and the role of art institutions in mediating what is going to inevitably become a more and more complicated set of impulses and data sources and aesthetic stimuli. And we are living in a world in which trying to navigate this becomes somehow more and more both inevitable, but also completely slippery. As an example, I just recorded an interview with Toby Green and Thomas Vatsy, who wrote The COVID Consensus, a book that happens to be an alternative account, quote unquote, of the COVID pandemic. And one of the questions that I'm kicking myself and not asking them more explicitly than I did is their approach to mediating evidence on this kind of meta level. So they wrote a book, it's 400 pages, it has footnotes, it has all sorts of factual information, but it enters into a world in which someone else has already written a book, multiple books, in which Every single one of the pieces of evidence that Thomas and Toby bring together has already been disputed. And I'm not even saying this to to propose that that book does exist, but its possibility exists. And I think we're living in a world in which there are so many images, there are so many pieces of data, there are so many sensory opportunities that we have to almost take a step back and understand that the counterposition already exists. And of course, that's kind of one of the things that makes forensics as complicated as it is. So in a sense, I'm just rephrasing the question that has, I think, been the theme of this interview, and that is to consider whether visual culture is indeed a best hope in in the forensic world.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, one can be sceptical about art as an arena as for evidence altogether. We could completely... Blow that apart. Um, You mentioned COVID 19, and this is an area where I've done some work Mm -hmm. following on directly from the concerns of the book. And that's led me to think about visual rhetoric in the context of the visual presence, the various visualizations of COVID 19. So that's an approach which has carried over into quite a different area, but which has led me to some very paradoxical conclusions. So the visualizations of COVID are very highly constructed. They're very susceptible to Mm -hmm. analysis in terms of visual rhetoric, which is something that Seil Weitzman mentions in the forensic architecture work. So you can argue that representations of COVID are Highly constructed. They're not natural. They're not straightforward. That they're based on a system of representation, even including the visualizations of the virus that we've seen, the spiky blob. Mm-hmm. So you can undertake that kind of analysis, but there's a question about where it leaves you. It leaves you thinking that public health emergencies are constructed. For example, that they're not inevitable, um, and that allows for a potential alignment with some of the sceptical responses to the pandemic. So that left me in quite a difficult position, really, in that I can see on the one hand that those discourses are precisely discourses and they're constructed. But on the other hand, that they're evidence-based. It's very difficult to reconcile those two positions. And yet, evidence still clearly means something. Mm. Numbers of uh, infections, numbers of deaths—all of those things do reside on uh, a foundation of facts, if you like, and of evidence, which we shouldn't be seeking to liquidate, despite the kind of critique that we tend to bring to bear upon visual media in all their forms. Mm. So there are some difficult positions here to negotiate in epistemological terms and there is a place for visual critique in all of these things but there's also a case for ethical attention as they argue at the end of the book and for a continued alignment with data and evidence i think despite the fact that those things can always become a rhetoric there is a foundation in something other than the rhetorical.
0: Oh, well, I guess this is not the interview where we end with things looking simpler than when we started. David, thank you very much for your work and thank you for the conversation.
1: Thank you. Thank you for a, a great interview and for your reading of the work.
0: Visual Culture and the Forensic, Culture, Memory, Ethics by David Houston Jones is published by Routledge. I'm Pierre de thanks for listening, and join us next time.